All right, we ready? Let's let's roll here. Well, thank you for coming to the conclusion of our grow course. This is grow course number nine. It has been nine months, nine months and six chapters. And today we're going to conclude with Ephesians chapter six. Well, nine months. I hope you all have grown in your understanding of the book of Ephesians. We have took a taking a thorough look at this wonderful book. Just by way of review as we get into it tonight, we've looked at six chapters, right? The first three are what we call the indicatives, what is true about us in Christ. The latter three are how we're then to live, right? The Christian imperatives. We have talked about, thus, our Christian wealth, chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 6, we talked about the Christian's walk that we may walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and worthy of our calling that we have received, chapters 1 through 3. So what is God doing? If we had to sum up the book of Ephesians, he is creating one new man, one new humanity. And it's called the church. Thus we have the book of Ephesians, the Christian's wealth and the Christian's walk. But tonight we're going to talk about how we are not only to reflect the gospel in our walk, but we're going to look at the struggle that we have at times in walking out the truths that we've talked about in Ephesians 1-3. through 3. The reality is, we're one new humanity, we're the church, but we often don't feel like it, do we? And we often don't reflect these truths that we've been talking about for so many months. Because here's the fact, here's the reality. If we attempt, and as we do attempt to live out the Christian life, we will be opposed, won't we? Our Christian walk will not go uncontested. So really, when we talk about growth, i.e. the grow course, part of growing up is facing the reality of the spiritual battle that confronts us as Christians. So part of our growth is learning to fight. Learning to fight that battle God's way. And that's what... We're going to talk about tonight in Ephesians 6. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. And sometimes God opens our eyes. He gives us a little visual reminder of the battle that we're in. This happened to me in college. It's happened several times. But this one memory has left an indelible mark uh, in my memory. A friend and I were sharing our faith during spring break on the beach in Mazatlan, Mexico. We were going through a little gospel tract called the Four Spiritual Laws as we were sharing with this one student who we had met on the beach that evening. As we went through the book, I just noticed that this student was unusually engaged in what we were saying. Now, we had done this many times you know, seen varying levels of interest as we shared the gospel. But this student was, he was really engaged. He, he was, you can tell he was listening intently. And I really believe God was doing a work in his soul as we were sharing the gospel. But the student had a friend, quote-unquote friend, who was probably about a good 80 to 100 yards away on the beach wall. So he was far enough away that he couldn't, hear what we were saying to his friend on the beach. He didn't really even know who we were. We had never spoken with him before. 
But I noticed something peculiar. As we were sharing the gospel with this one engaged student, I saw his friend on the wall. And at first, he was just waving his hands on the wall, trying to get his friend's attention. Okay, not a big deal. Shared point one. God loves you. has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay, the guy's a little distracting. I see him in, in the, you know, my vision there. We get to point two. That man is sinful and separated from God. And his friend on the wall starts literally jumping up and down. In fact, he's starting to scream at this point. I'm thinking, okay, maybe he's drunk. They're partying. Okay, dismiss it. We get to point three. About Christ, of epic work on the cross. And I start hearing shrieks from this guy up on the wall. He's becoming a major distraction. He's still yards away. But he's screaming at the top of his lungs to his friend. Not making any sense that I could tell. Just making a lot of odd noises. And being very animated. But his friend was, I could tell, he was just, he was ignoring his buddy on the wall. And he he was right there. He he was reading the scripture. He could tell something was happening. So we got to that pivotal point where we spoke about Christ and the need for a decision to follow him. At that very point, his friend jumped off the wall and started sprinting towards us like it, sprinting in the sand, 100 yards, okay? He's like a Tasmanian, Tasmanian devil, okay? With all unholy fury. And he's running as fast as he can. I thought, i got to hurry this thing up. So we said, well, you know, brothers, decision here, there's a prayer that may express the desire of your heart. I go, would you want to pray it? He says, I would. At that time, his friend comes and tackles him, pummels him in the sand. And we're just standing there, my friend and I, what is going on? I mean, so we're praying, man, we're rebuking demons. We don't know what to do. We're stunned at what's happening. And the guys are laying there in the sand. His friend is pummeling him. And suddenly... They stand up and they walk away. I'll never forget that moment. What in the world was going on? I tell you what was going on. There's a spiritual battle for the soul of one man. In that image, I said with me my entire life, all these years later, there's a real enemy to our souls. And at times, this enemy is rushing at us. And he wants to take you down. He wants to take your friends down. He wants to take your family down. He wants to take the church down. It is real. And we're called to stand and to fight. I don't think it's any coincidence that the conclusion of chapter 6, the well-known passage on spiritual warfare, is preceded by Paul's teaching on marriage and the family, marriage, and the household. Why? I believe the spiritual battle can be most intense in our own families, in our own households. With that in mind, let us listen now to Max McLean one more time as he reads the entirety of Ephesians 6 for us before we launch into the questions for this evening. Can you do that, Bentley? Children, 
Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Great, let us pray. Well, Lord, I ask this evening that you would fortify our faith as we learn to put on the spiritual armor which you have provided. Oh Lord, remind us this evening that we do not war or wrestle against flesh and blood, against humanity, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Oh Lord, remind us this evening that our spouse is not the enemy, that our children are not our enemies, that our employer or that person in church is not our enemy. Oh, there is an enemy we know, O oh Lord, who wages war against our soul. May we contend tonight with faith that you are victorious. May we contend with hope. For those of us who are weary tonight, 
We're weary of battling the flesh. We're weary of battling the evil one. Lord, for those who are experiencing irreconciled relationships, perhaps in our marriage, with a child, with even a friend, may you bring reconciliation this evening. Where there is discord, may you bring peace. So Jesus, would you minister to us tonight? As we learn to put on the spiritual armor, we learn what it means to fight with the sword of the spirit, your very word. As we learn what it means to pray. And may we experience the hope that we have in Christ. That we may walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and please you in all that we do. Amen. Amen. Well, this evening we start with chapter 6 that you just heard. We begin with Paul addressing children and parents. This is really this evening a continuation of chapter 5, what we said last month, as Paul addresses the wives and the husbands. Now he moves on, chapter 6, verse 1. He's addressing the children and the parents. It's really a continuation, though, of what came before this. He's addressed the husband and wives, and what came before that. This admonition to be filled with the Spirit. So I want that to frame our discussion tonight. And we'll look at question one. So question one is this, which I'll you have in your homework. Like the preceding section addressed to wives and husbands, what do the commands to children and parents, and also slaves and masters, assume? Look back at Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 21, and recall our discussion last night. This is important as we frame our discussion, as we look at the context this evening for that which we're about to read and have read. Anyone want to give it a go? What did the commands to children and parents and slaves and masters assume? Referencing back to Ephesians 5.18. Yes, Alex. They were seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? Remember last month we talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit? And there was four markers, right? As you see in the text in Ephesians 5. Would you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Right? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? i.e. experiencing biblical fellowship. That second marker of being filled was singing and making melody to the Lord, i.e. worship. The third marker was giving thanks to the Lord for everything. And the fourth was submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And with that last point, submitting to one another, as you submit to one another, it's part of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Wives submit to husbands, all right? Husbands are serving to lead and to love their wives. And now he's getting to children. Children, submit to your parents. He doesn't use the word submit, does he? He uses even a stronger phrase. He says, children, obey your parents. I.e., submit to them. But the reality is, just as husband and wives cannot relate to one another and fulfill these commands in Ephesians 5 without being filled with the Holy Spirit, neither can children nor parents rightfully fulfill the commands of Scripture that we see here apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit. So presumably, I believe we can make the case that Paul is speaking to Christian children as well as Christian parents. We're going to tease that out in our second question, okay? It's interesting to note that Paul is addressing a local congregation, a local church, right? The church at Ephesus. And he's including children. This is a letter that's to be read to the church. And Paul's assuming that not only parents who are there, there's also children as well who are listening, right? 
So he's addressing the children in this letter. So the picture of whole families, right? In this church, assembled together. And he's addressing them one by one. Wives, husbands. Yes, you too, children. Yes, and younger children here as well. Thanks for being here. I'm addressing you as well. The Word of God is addressing you as well. And then he goes to parents. And even slaves and masters. We'll talk about that as well. He's addressing whole families. And he's saying, children, you too are expected to submit in the Lord. Right? What are the grounds mentioned? Because it's right. Nature tells us that. That parents ought to obey, excuse me, children ought to obey their parents, right? Not just does nature tell us that. The law does as well, right? He quotes from the Ten Commandments. It's also right in the Lord. And there we see the gospel coming in right away into our first verse of 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Excuse me, verse 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment. That's the first commandment with a promise. And then verse 3. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. But I want you to see this phrase, in the Lord. Because there I think we get a clue of how the gospel is to relate. And that leads to question number two. What does it mean to obey your parents in the Lord? Can anyone articulate? What do you think that means, that phrase, that curious phrase, in the Lord? Good. So if part of it's being filled, it must be filled. This is a mark of being filled, obeying, that's doing in the strength and power the Lord provides. I think it could be. We're not giving an explanation, are we? So we're making our best attempt from Scripture, but I love how you're reasoning from Scripture. That's good. It could be, Cassie, and it could be correct. And there's a couple answers here. We're trying to get at it, because a lot of times Paul doesn't stop to explain himself. He uses these phrases. But I think we do have clues, don't we, in Scripture, to obey in the Lord. Yes, Marcus. Okay, so obey the Lord as far as it corresponds with Scripture, what is true, and what is right. So if it's something that contrary to Scripture, don't obey them. That could be the case, although I don't see quite enough evidence for that, but it could be. I mean, that's true. That is principally true, Marcos, and that could be the meaning. But lo- looking for evidence, though, to derive our conclusion here of what it can mean. The slaves, yeah, I think we're getting at that. We see a similar phraseology, don't we? Verses 6 and 7. You know, slaves obey your earthly masters, verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And then verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Right, so we're obeying in the Lord and His strength that He provides, doing it unto Him as well, because He's ultimately your Lord and Master. Yeah, I think those are correct. I think also if you look at the wide reach, you look at the whole book in its entirety, Paul is speaking of what it means to be in Christ. Or we could say, in the Lord. In a sense, he's appealing, I think, to the children, as well, according to your personal relationship to the Lord. According to the reconciling work that Christ has done. Right? The relationships have been transformed by Christ. We have no longer been reconciled to God We've been reconciled to one another. That's the main theme, right, in Ephesians. This reconciliation transforms the parent-child relationship. 
that you can now obey in the Lord because of what Christ has done for you, child, and for you, parent. Remember Malachi? It's in chapter 4, the promise, the new covenant, where we read that the father's hearts be turned to the children and the children to the fathers, i.e. to the parents. In other words, now children, you've been reconciled even to your, your parents. You can now obey, not in begrudging acquiescence, but you can now do so in joy because Christ has come to transform your relationships, both the vertical and the horizontal. So now it is possible for you to obey in his strength according to what Christ has done. I think all of that is embedded in that rich phrase, in the Lord. And there I think we find hints of the gospel as well. Remember the theme of Ephesians? Ephesians 1, verse 10. What is Christ doing in the world? And what is God doing through Christ? He's reconciling all things to Christ. God is summing up all things in Christ. The church is a witness to that as we love and relate to one another. Our families are a witness to God's reconciling work. Even the parent-child relationship is a manifestation and evidence of what God is doing in the world, reconciling us to one another. Do you see that? I think this is an extension of that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Knowing that when you do so, you're also obeying the Lord as well, right? Where does the promise come from? Verse 2. What is he quoting there? What particular scripture? Do you know? Honor your father and mother. Ten Commandments. Got a reference there? Exodus 20, 12. Right? He's combining it with one other. Deuteronomy 5 as well. I think it's verse 16. Right? You may live long in the land and it may go well with you. Deuteronomy 5. And he's quoting this precious promise this truism here that there will be blessing if you do obey in the Lord. Well, not only does Paul have a word for children, but for parents as well. He says, verse 4, fathers, by the word, by the way, that Greek word can also be translated parents as well. Fathers, plural, or kid refer to parents. So I don't want you thinking that way. Moms as well, this applies to you. So fathers or parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. First of all, I said that's a pretty radical statement. It may not be to us, but for any Roman father, a Roman father had absolute power over his children. A Roman father could sell his child as a slave. And he's saying, fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up. That, 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 that word translated bring them up means nourish them, feed them. It's the same word used of husbands to cherish and nourish their wives. See the gentleness, the affection there? Father's parents, bring them up, nourish, and feed your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Looking at verse 4, and looking at our question number 3 in your homework, how can parents provoke their children? Take notice of the contrast, the word but there, in 
as well as the answer to question number one and formulating your answer. Any ideas? Father, do not provoke your children. How perhaps, according to this verse, can we as parents provoke our children? Any ideas? Right. You catch that? It's so simple, we can almost miss it, can't we? (laughs) Do not provoke your children. But, by way of contrast, i.e. in not provoking them, nourish them, feed them, bring them up with correction, discipline, and proper instruction in the Lord. So what does it imply? If we as parents are not correcting our children, if we're not properly instructing them in the ways of God, i.e. the very word of God, we are provoking them to anger. They're asked to obey at times, or they're expected to obey, with no instruction or no understanding. And they are provoked to anger, perhaps provoked as well to rebellion as well. Do you see that? Looking back at question number one, what is required to fulfill these commandments to husband and wives, parents and children, how can we also then provoke our children? Okay, so try to control your child. I think that definitely can't be the case. Was that more from just what you've observed, or did you see that in the text somewhere? Just Okay, observed. I think there are a lot of answers to this question we've observed as parents or as children, right? But looking at the text, it could be as well. But I just wanted to drop that point, particularly the training. This idea of failing to discipline our children and failing to give them instruction. That word for discipline really is the idea of giving correction. And the word for instruction really is verbal instruction, okay? Teaching them. But the point as well I'm asking is, if we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit to fulfill these commands, if we as parents aren't filled with the Holy Spirit, we may, we may well provoke our children. You catch that? If we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, being guided and led by His Holy Spirit, being empowered by His Holy Spirit, God knows we need empowering His parents, don't we? If we're doing it in our own strength, if we're doing it in our own flesh, yes, we will provoke our children, and yes, we will control our children. Attempt to, won't we? If we do it not in the Lord, not being filled with the Holy Spirit, but do it in our own power and strength, we will provoke our children. So once again, more answers. We're just trying to tease this out by looking at Scripture and understanding, informing these commands, okay? How about question number four? We're now addressing slaves and masters, verses verses 5 through 9. What is the proper spirit-filled motivation for slaves obeying their masters and the master's treatment of their slaves? Let's stop there and address that. Let's just make a note before we actually answer that question. That may be helpful. More than I can get into. But there's often a question of why is Paul addressing slaves? Why isn't he rebuking masters and even the institution of slavery? I'm not going to go fully into that answer. But I do think he's addressing this issue because he's addressed marriages, parents and children, and now he's addressing those in the household. who may not be children, but slaves. He's addressing households here, okay? I don't believe the Bible condones slavery, although the slavery mentioned here is much different than what we know of today in the African slave trade. About half of all those in the Roman Empire were slaves. About 60 million were slaves. 
many times they're economic slaves, sold into slavery or themselves, put themselves in slavery because of debts or economic reasons. But what's so interesting here is that Paul is addressing slaves as members of God's household with equal rights before the Lord. Remember he's addressing the church, children, parents, who else would be there meeting together, congregating? Slaves as well. And he's saying the fact that he's addressing them, that they are accepted members of the Christian community. Isn't that cool? We see it also when Paul writes to Philemon, asking Philemon to take back his runaway slave. What was his name? Anesimus. You know how he calls him? What he calls him? My brother, Anesimus. Isn't that cool? Equal rights for the Lord. An accepted member of Christ's community and household. So he's addressing those that are part of the households here, okay? Those who are congregating in the church in Ephesus. And he's addressing the slaves, how they're to obey their masters. But what is the reason why? Why should they? As evil as this is, why should they? They're under the same master. They are. Right. It says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. As to the Lord, not to men. When you obey, you're not obeying your master, you're obeying the Lord. Because you both share one master, slaves and masters alike, right? Have one ultimate master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because one day, you'll be judged, you'll be evaluated, and you will be rewarded as well. All right? For the good that you did and the way in which you lived. How does this relate to us today? How does it relate to employee and employer relationships? Think it applies? How so? Great. So we fill the spirit we reflect the gospel in those relationships those who spend most time with so in the employer employee relationship maybe outside the house it's those you spend much time with right perhaps some most time each and every day and even does this give dignity to our work as well that we may have bosses that yes are unrighteous we have bosses that we don't like but as we are working we are working unto the Lord, serving Christ as we do our job dutifully. Not out of fear of man, not as a people pleaser, but with a desire to please my Lord. That gives dignity to your work, that you are serving Christ even as you're serving your employer or boss. Authority, yes. It's a great point. All these are, are addressing, submitting to authority, the, God, the authority God's placed in your life. Great. Just in summary, this would affect our work ethic, what we do, even when the boss is not looking, right? Because God 
Christ is looking from above, and he's our ultimate master and servant. So it does affect how we work. The attitude in which we work and our very work ethic itself. It sure does. I think it's a great passage to go to for that. Great. Well, it's in this section right here where Paul's addressing parents, children, slaves, and masters. Where Paul's addressing marriages and families and households and those in authority, right? You see, it's these households that Paul is speaking to that are to reflect the truth of Ephesians. That we as Christians are one unified new humanity that Christ has brought forth, right? Through his reconciling work on the cross. I say, great. I think I understand that now. It's been so many months. I think I'm getting it through my head that we as the church and in our family to reflect the reconciling work that Christ has done. But maybe you're like me and there's often a dissonance between what is true (laughs) and what you experience in your family, in your household, or maybe what you've even experienced in the church, sadly enough. This may be true theologically, but it hasn't always been true experientially. And you struggle. Your reality that you've experienced doesn't match that which is stated here. I want to read a quote from John Stott in his commentary on Ephesians. I think he says it well. After addressing the different households, he says this, But now Paul, that's in verse 10, brings us down to earth and to realities harsher than dreams. He reminds us of the opposition. Beneath surface appearances, an unseen spiritual battle is raging. He introduces us to the devil, already mentioned in chapter 2, verse 2, and 4, verse 27, and to certain principalities and powers at his command. He supplies us with no biography of the devil and no account of the origin of the forces of darkness. He assumes their existence as common ground between himself and his readers. In any case, his purpose is not to satisfy our curiosity, but to warn us of their hostility and to teach us how to overcome them. Is God's plan to create a new society? Then they will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down the walls dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil, through his emissaries, will strive to rebuild them. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them the seeds of discord and sin. It is with these powers that we are told to wage war or, to be more precise, to wrestle. And so we come to the culmination of the book of Ephesians with this passage starting in verse 10 to 20. The whole armor of God. What's Paul saying? Once again, embedding this in the greater context. I believe Paul is saying through our study and what God is saying to us that family life, yes, even marriage, is spiritual warfare. It's part of a larger reality. It's often overlooked. And I think this chapter right here, Ephesians 6, particularly verse 10 and following, helps make the connection clear. But the reality is we often miss it, don't we? I've read a lot of books on marriage. I've read a lot of books on parenting. But few, if any, spend any time embedding it in this context that we find here in Ephesians. 
that marriage and even parenting is spiritual warfare. <laughs> Only one person I've seen who's mentioned that, his name's Andreas Kostenberger in his excellent book, God, Marriage, and Family. Only he really gives much attention to this point found in Ephesians 6. But I believe we must give it attention as well. Because marriage and the family are not mere human conventions. that are just cultural norms. No. Marriage, families, and the church, they are divinely instituted by God. So if Satan wants to rob God of glory, what's he going to go after? Marriages, family, and the church. That which has been ordained and instituted by God. And that's often the epicenter of spiritual warfare. Such as out there, it's often the lives we live as family, both biological family and spiritually as well. So why should we be surprised <laughs> that marriage and parenting can be so difficult? Why are we surprised about how difficult it can be to live and to love one another in the church. Oh, I believe there is something called spiritual warfare. And it's not against flesh and blood. But yes, against demonic powers as well. We must fight, church, with awareness of this battle. We cannot be ignorant. We must know our enemy. Like I prayed, our enemy is not our spouse, <laughs> not our parents, not that person you may be currently irreconciled to or angry at or embittered with. No. It's not your enemy. Oh, there, there's a real enemy. And God, through Ephesians 6, is pointing us to the real enemy. All right? But not just that. The weapons that we're to fight this enemy with. All right? With that in mind, let's look at question number five. What are the four imperatives found in chapter 6, verses 10 to 14. Let's identify those first. The four imperatives. What we ought to do. What do you come up with? Be strong. Be strong. Thank you, Tim. Number one, be strong. Okay. Number two. Put on. Put on. Okay, yes. So the imperatives, be strong. Put on. Put on what? The whole armor. Okay. Thirdly, take up, once again, a reiteration. Take up the whole armor, okay? And fourthly, stand, stand, therefore, right? Implied in this armor. Well, the second part of that question, number five, why must we put on the whole armor of God? Why must we take up, put on this armor? Why? Great. So our fight is not against, as I said, humans. It's ultimately against Satan and his cohorts as well, right? So in other words, we put on the whole armor because we're in a battle. There's a real battle waging in the heavenlies that we must fight. Look at four times this, this word against. We're in a battle. Verse 12. We're fighting what? It's, it's against the rulers. It's a... He repeats it, against the authorities. Again, against the cosmic powers. Against the spiritual forces. You get it? We're in a battle. Against. It's a real battle that we're engaged in. Where does this battle take place? 
Heart and mind, true. But what, what does it say here? In the heavenly places. Right? There's true. There's a battle. We'll get to that. There's a battle of the flesh. That's true. But he's talking about here a, a battle that's in the heavenlies. In the spiritual realm, there is a true battle taking place that we can't see. It's an invisible reality. Oh, we get, we see the manifestation of that battle in our church, in relationship, human relationships, don't we? But it's a real battle. It's a spiritual battle. And our enemies are not human. They're demonic. But listen to this. Oh, it's a battle. It's a battle in the spiritual heavenlies. But it's a winnable battle as well. I love, love the usage of the word in verse 10. It says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Strong, strength, might. These are the exact words in the original language in Greek that are used in the first chapter, 119, in describing the power that God exerted in raising Christ from the dead. It's that same power, the resurrection power in life that we have to fight this battle. This battle has been waged in the heavenlies of which we are a part. It is winnable. But we must be attuned to this battle that's taking place. A while back, I had a chance to read a paper by professor theologian John Frame. It's a paper, excellent paper called Polemic Theology. And he speaks of how many of the mainline, he would say, elements of Christianity are what he called two-railed. I'll explain that. We tend to emphasize one rail of the track over the other rail of the track, so to speak. In other words, we may choose to emphasize God's transcendence, right? God is not like us. He's a part. He is holy. Or, that is true, we tend to emphasize God and Jesus. He's our friend. He's our buddy. We tend to emphasize one to the neglect of the other. But it's true, both. God is holy. He is unlike us. We're to fear God. But he's also eminent. He came to dwell among us in the flesh. And now lives in us through his Holy Spirit as well. So he's eminent, but he's also transcendent. But what we often do in theological circles is we emphasize one to the neglect of the other, right? In reform circles, right? We emphasize the sovereignty of God. I'm glad we do, right? God's sovereignty. But we can often do it to the neglect of human will and rational decision. Oh, God's fully sovereign. That doesn't mean we don't exercise a will or exercise rational choices as human beings. The Bible presents both. God's sovereignty, but real choices as well. So we can tend to emphasize one over the other. I just wonder if we do that as well in this area, in our battle of progressive sanctification. We talk so often about battling the flesh. That is true. The enemy within, right? Paul speaks much about it as well. Right? Particularly in Romans and other places. We have a battle going on. The flesh indwelling sin. Right? You know, the power of sin has been broken. The bondage of sin has been broken. Indwelling sin still exerts an influence in us. We're still sinful. We still wage war against what Paul calls the flesh. I think we properly times emphasize that. But in doing so, we can neglect Ephesians 6. Our battles against the flesh, our own flesh, our own hearts. But there's also a spiritual battle as well. But we can also tell it to the other side, can't we? Pretty soon, every malady we have and every sin, it's a demon, right? There's a demon at every rock, right? 
we can swing the pendulum either way. What I love here is Paul saying, yeah, all that stuff is in Romans. That's, that's true. We battle the flesh. Romans 7, it's a real battle. But you know what else? We have another enemy as well. It's Satan himself. We need both rails of the track, so to speak, as John Frame talks about, right? When one of the factors is overlooked, one of the rails, it's like a railroad operator who'd attempt to run an ordinary train with only one rail. Doesn't work. Unless you're at Disney and you're on a monorail, okay? That's another point, okay? Traditional trains, all right? You're running on a track with two track, two rails? Yeah, you need both rails, don't you? If not, you're going to derail. You're going to crash. You're going to crash and burn. We need both. That makes sense. I don't think we often talk about this, at least we have it in our circles, in reform circles. We need both as well. What are we called to do? We're in a battle. We're called to fight, put on, take on the form of God. And we're to stand. Kind of a curious phrase. Ephesians 4, walk. Ephesians 5, walk. Ephesians 6, we're to stand. Why do you think the author here uses that word? Any ideas? I'm not even sure. I have some ideas, but... Why do you think he uses the word stand there? Instead of walk. Any thoughts, musings here as you look at scripture? It's a key word for the section of Ephesians 6. So we're to stand and see that the victory or the battle belongs to the Lord? Okay. How does stand help us there? What do you think stand represents then? I'm, w- I'm with you. Yeah. Right. They stood. Yeah. It, certainly it's a part. It could be a battle technique as well, standing. But like what you said earlier, Cindy, as well, that we're to stand. Christ is fighting the battle. But we know from Ephesians, in fact, not only is he fighting the battle, hey, the victory is won. Right? Ephesians 1. Christ is raised to the heavenlies as the victor. He's the ascended, enthroned victor. What does it say in Ephesians 2? What happens to us? We are seated with him in the heavenlies. That victory that Christ won at the cross, we've been now seated with him in the heavenlies. It is our victory as well. We're to stand. Stand firm in the victory which Christ has won. That may be it. Maybe other reasons. I think it sounds good. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Marcus. Good standing against, standing with, st- standing up, all those. Yeah, it communicates the battle, the fight, right? That we're in. That we're to stand, we are to withstand. Good. It's good, yeah. It's, it's, it's back to this battle motif, right? We don't necessarily go and walk in battle. I mean, walk does not communicate a battle, does it? <laughs> if you get to stroll, perhaps, but not a battle. This idea of standing firm, standing upon, standing with, standing against. Yeah, it communicates that we're in a battle, doesn't it? We're standing upon the truths that we've learned. We're standing with one another in battle. This is not a casual walk or stroll, this Christianity that we're a part of, this Christian walk. No, we do walk out and apply the truth. There's times we stand, we fight. Right? Because we're in a battle. Yeah. I think Paul's saying stand. I think all those reasons are correct. I was going back to Ephesians 4. Verse 14. 
It is said that we may no, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. What's he describing? Describing a wobbly Christian. <laughs> no, stand, be firm. And what I've taught you, what you know to be true, and fight for the truth that I've given you and what is true of you in Christ. You see that? I think all of those are getting at, perhaps, some of the reasons why he chose that word and the connotation of this word stand. Quote from John Stott, Wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. Yes, they are. Well, speaking of the devil, number six, what are some of the deceptive schemes previously spoken about in chapter four that we are to stand against? So he mentioned the wiles of the schemes of the evil one, the devil. Can we articulate any of those from Ephesians? Some of his schemes? Good. Faulty teaching, false doctrine, good. Schemes. It's good. Yeah. So one of the ploys of the enemy is false teaching. Oh, it may have a little truth to it. (laughs) Right? Just like Satan's lies to Adam and Eve. A little bit of truth mixed in with a lot of lie as well. So it sounds attractive, right? False teaching, heretical teaching, teaching that's not the gospel. Yes, one of his schemes, certainly, false teaching and that craftiness. Do you see anything else in chapter 4 that you found? Yes. Was it the world system? World system's great. Where do you see that? Yeah, Sean, great. Let me elaborate. When you say world systems, what are you talking about there? Get all that as opposed to God? Certainly, I want to get a little more, a little more detail. And then you're not right, but I want to look at Ephesians 4 particularly. Good. What, what do you see that? What verse? Good. Yeah, let's look at number 6. Be angry and do not sin. This is verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Yeah. Wow, there's the devil popping up again, right? And anger. Was it related to that, Tim? Or Okay, let's just develop that a little more. What, what, what's, it, what's it talking about here? Right? Through anger with one, an- one another, one of Satan's schemes is to divide, right? To use anger to divide and to cause division. We see that as well. Do not give the devil a foothold, right? Schemes. Good. Tim. Verse 18, hardness of heart. Could be, you know, but it's not attributed to the devil there. Oftentimes, hardness of heart is actually attributed to the God himself, you know? Either he hardens heart or he allows hearts to be hardened. So we do see that in a few places in Scripture as well. Romans 1 being one of them. So I think that's a result sometimes of, of giving in to sin and perhaps the schemes of the evil one buying in. There is a hardness of heart that results. So in that sense, he will definitely employ that. Well, those are the two that I had, verses 14 and verse 27. There are many other schemes as well, but I just want to point out a couple that are mentioned there in Scripture briefly. How about from experience? Okay, maybe not, maybe not Scripture per se. You can't point to Ephesians 4, but you just know from experience what are some of the tactics or schemes of the evil one that you've experienced? But there are many more than just we see in chapter 4. Guilt and condemnation. 
Yeah, we're going to get to that in the spiritual armor as well. I think it, the armor that we're to put on addresses that very point. Rafa, deceitful desires. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, how the flesh and the enemy, Satan, or his devil, inter, interplay, right? I mean, definitely the enemy will prey upon your flesh where you're weak, right? Those areas, those deceitful desires of the world in your heart, he definitely will use those to entice, no doubt. He'll use all means. He'll certainly use, first and foremost, our own fleshly desires, won't he? Our deceitful desires. And play to our flesh. They look attractive and winsome. It's good. I thought just one other as well. You know, I think it's true in our society today. It hasn't always been true, but it is in American culture at least. I think one of his schemes is persuading people that he doesn't exist. <laughs> There's no devil. Yeah. Red guy with horns and a pitchfork. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. Um, that's just so unenlightened, you know. Antiquated. Um, immature, foolish. Or to persuade Christians, there's really no battle. We make peace where there is no peace. Many other ways as well. But we must move on. Number seven, list the armor of God which with, which, with, with which we have been equipped as Christian. Christians. Excuse me. Let's list them, okay? Number one, belt of truth. Let's stop there as well. By the way, before I even get into this armor, okay, I got to restrain myself here. Okay, this armor, do you know whose armor it is? It's God's armor. Yeah. Just reading in Ephesians the other day. Pretty cool. Okay, I'll make it quick. Ephesians 59, verse 17. You can jot it down. Speaking of God, He put on righteousness as a breastplate. Hey, sound familiar? And a helmet of salvation on His head. Isaiah, yes. But speaking of God, it's in the book of Isaiah. But speaking of God's work, okay? Isaiah 59, verse 17. He's speaking of God, speaking of his armor. I just mentioned that because his armor that we're put on, it's God's armor. He's forged it, and he's given it to us to put on. All right? It's been forged and furnished by God. Got a cool quote here. I'm going to go back to my question. But from the Puritan William Grinnell, he wrote a 1,200-page book on the Christian armor. 1,200 pages on Ephesians 6 alone. If we had more time, I'd read you the subtitle. But it takes too long. It's like the subtitle of the book is over half page long. Just a subtitle, okay? 1,200 pages. Anyway, there's a Puritan's for it. Anyway, a quote from him. He says, In heaven we shall appear not in armor, but in robes of glory. But here, that's on earth, pieces of armor are to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. Our robes of glory await us. But until then, we're wearing the armor. We're soldiers in the army. What have we been given? The belt of truth, number one. Belt of truth. This belt of truth was part of the Roman soldiers' kind of undergarments or underwear. It held the undergarments and held the sword. It was the belt of truth. In other words, the belt of truth held everything together that the Roman 
Soldier War. By the way, I think Paul would have been very familiar with this. He's riding chained to a Roman soldier. He had seen many in his lifetime. It's fascinating he uses this analogy here. This belt of truth. Why do we need the belt of truth? Because Satan is a deceiver. We need the belt of truth. Where do we get the belt of truth? <laughs> We've been fasting the belt of truth on for the last nine months. It's right here in Ephesians. It tells us who God is, who we are in Christ, what he's done for us. We need to know this. We need the belt of truth, don't we? Or else we too will be deceived. We will be vulnerable. We need this belt of truth. Number two, what's the second piece of armor? Breastplate of righteousness. Why would we need a breastplate of righteousness? Because Satan is an accuser. He's an accuser. Yeah. You call yourself a Christian. You're just one big hypocrite. Who are you fooling? Oh, how many times have we battled condemnation and guilt, as we already mentioned? Oh, put on the breastplate of righteousness. You are righteous in Christ. And you can do righteous deeds because you have been made righteous by Christ. Christ's righteousness has been given, has been imputed to you. Put it on against satanic accusations that would cause you to doubt. Oh yes, we need that breastplate of righteousness. Number three. Next piece of equipment. Yeah, shoes. Kind of interesting, huh? You ever seen the Roman shoes? They're kind of like sandals. I'm liking that. I like sandals. Open-toed, you know? Nice, thick um, sole laced up in the ankle and shin, right? So they were sturdy, but yet they were mobile as well. The soldiers could move as well. They weren't too clunky. They could move and respond, right? Yeah, it's a, fasc- it's a, it's a fascinating phraseology here, isn't it? Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What does that mean? Readiness, the gospel of peace. Well, we've learned in Ephesians, right? That God has called us to peace. He has made peace between Jew and Gentile in peace with God, right? So we have the horizontal, excuse me, the vertical peace with God and also peace with one another as well. We're called to be peacemakers. We have hope. We are to be peacemakers. We can be peacemakers as Christ has brought us peace, right? Are we ready to be peacemakers? Are we attempting to make peace? Because we have been called to peace, right? We learned in Ephesians 4, if we were to walk worthy of the gospel, chapter 4, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and what? In the bond of peace. We are eager to keep the unity of the church and of the family as well, right? The body of Christ together. We're eager. That kind of communicates that readiness, doesn't it? The shoes that are ready. Ready to reconcile. Ready to make peace. To maintain unity in the bond of peace. We'll be fitted with these shoes, right? It may also mean ready to bear witness of Christ as well. To share the gospel. Which brings ultimate peace, right? Between man and God. Yes, shoes. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Yeah, great. Romans 10, yes. Good. 
Number four, what's the fourth piece of armor? Shield of faith. Why would he need a shield of faith? What was that? Extinguishing the fiery darts that come our way. Yeah. Because Satan is a tempter, isn't he? By the way, this shield of faith is not just a little shield. It's about four and a half feet long. It was oblong. It covered the entire body. In fact, the Roman soldiers would march in rows or columns called phalanxes, okay? And they would have this oblong shield, one next to the other, linked together. And in this phalanx, they would form a complete wall in which no fiery dart could penetrate. Isn't that cool? What I love about that is it's not just individual warfare. Oh, it's that. But we're fighting together corporately, together as a people with our shields of faith, linked together arm in arm that no shield, no fiery darts may penetrate. Cool imagery, isn't it? To quote from John Stott regarding this shield of faith, it was especially designed to put out the dangerous incendiary missiles that in use, especially arrows dipped in pitch, which were then lit and fired. Ouch. The shield of faith is to protect us from the fiery darts, mischievous accusations, doubt, disobedience, rebellion, lust, malice, fear. We put up the shield of faith. We exercise faith. We can say no. We do not have to give in to the tempter and all the doubts that he'd want to sow as well and all the things he'd want to tempt us with to follow the ways of the world and his ways to destruction rather than righteousness. Ah, fifthly, what have we been given? Yes? Helmet of salvation. What do you think that means? Helmet of salvation. Seeing that helmets with the plumes and all, you know? These are hard, these are hard hats, guys. They take like an axe to break one of these things. Helmet of salvation. Any idea? What does that mean? Yeah, go for it, Marianne. Yeah, I think it has to do with the mind there, renewing your mind. Because, yeah, Satan's going to want to confuse you, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, what, what else? We're not always giving a lot of clues here. So when I'm asking this question, we're piecing together what you know from Scripture. Because at times, Paul doesn't feel he needs to explain himself. So he doesn't give us a lot of definition here on some of these terms. So we're trying to piece it together from what we know. Yeah. That's great. That's great, Sean. I think I, think, I, think I agree with that. Yeah. This assurance of salvation. You, you, you catch what he said? That we will persevere to the end. Perseverance of the saints. God has saved us. He will complete the work he has begun. We are saved. There's the hope of salvation and glory that awaits. We are loved unconditionally. We've been saved. Therefore, now I can love unconditionally as well. God has saved me. I've saved and being saved and will be saved. Yes. Over here, Elias. Let me show you. Yeah. Yes. Good. Protection of mind against Satan's schemes to despair. Right. Or as you mentioned earlier, to deceive. Right, Elias? Great. Absolutely. To doubt our salvation. I think all those things. Yeah. Good. Great. 
know what? Let's move on to the sixth one for time's sake. Sword of the Spirit is the sixth one. We're given the sword of the Spirit. By the way, this sword is not, as I learned doing some study here, not some long sword we can reach with and do battle. No, this is a short sword. This is a dagger. You see the implications? We're talking hand-to-hand combat here. We're given a short sword. Face-to-face, mano-a-mano, right? We're to fight. We're to wrestle. We're to use this dagger, this short dagger, in hand-to-hand combat. What is the sword of the Spirit? What is it? The Word of God, yeah. Not just law. It's not logos. The Word of God, like, just, yeah. Scripture in general, you know. No, no. Rhema. It's the words of God. We're to use the very words of God to fight against the lies and accusations of the enemy. We're to use his, God's scripture, God's words, God's big verses and truths to fight the lies and accusations of the enemy. What example do we have in the scripture? Who did that? Jesus, when? Temptation in the wilderness, right? Three temptations. How did Christ respond? with specific verses, all from the book of Deuteronomy. He knew the word of God well, and he used those truths to combat the enticing lies of the enemy. He used the sword of the Spirit. That begs the question, how well do we know the word to use it? Hopefully, you've been equipped this last year to know the word well in Ephesians, but to use it against the lies and schemes of the evil one. Yes, the sword of the Spirit. We must know Scripture. And lastly, this isn't so much a piece of armor, but it's another weapon that we have that's listed in Scripture here in Ephesians 6. What is it? Prayer. Prayer. Don't want to neglect that. It is to pervade all of our spiritual warfare. Prayer. One of the greatest weapons that we've been given. We don't usually believe it. Oh, but it's here. Listen to it. There's four universals given here. Prayer. Praying what? At all times. Verse 18. With what? All prayer. Supplication. With all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. Get the point? We're to pray all times, all occasions. Posture of prayer. All types of prayer. Yes, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We're praying to God. We're dependent upon Him. We pray with perseverance. Oh, we keep praying. We pray for all the saints. Which means you know what to pray for. <laughs> then your homework. You know other people. You're in relationship with other people. You're praying for all the saints. Not just for yourself in the battle, but all those saints who are battling like you are in this cosmic battle. We're to pray. Oh, much more I can say there. So how many are there in total? Six. And if you add prayer, seven. So you could say six, really, pieces of armor. But as far as armor or weapons total, you could say seven. I'm not sure if that was intentional or not, but seven is a number frequently used in Scripture for completion and wholeness. We begin everything we need in the spiritual armor. Most of them are defensive, but there's at least one or two that are offensive. What are those weapons that we've already listed? The Word of God, the sword, right? It's offensive, but it's also offensive, right? And what else? Prayer. 
So what are the two offensive weapons we've been given to fight? Prayer and the Word of God. The Word of God. That's what we're studying in Ephesians. That's what we've taken a whole year. So thank you for hanging in there, persevering. Oh, I'm equipping you. We're being equipped together to use properly the Word of God, the Sword of the Spirit. And I hope next year to talk much more, I believe we will, the topic of prayer. That's where my heart as well. For we've been given prayer and the Word of God to do battle. We can have all the armor, but we can fail the triumph because we do not call upon God. Prayer and the Word of God. Yes. It's great. So yeah. So right, bringing peace, reconciliation does not give Satan a foothold, right? But I like to say there, but it's interesting. Satan is depicted as a serpent. What do serpents do? They bite. Even in Genesis 3, right? When sin enters the world, what's the curse? Right? Well, there's this, in, what was it, Genesis 3.15, you know, that the seed of the woman will bruise the head, the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent, Satan, will bruise the heel. <laughs> okay? Will bruise the heel. This idea of the serpent, we see it again in Revelation 12, this idea of the serpent bruising the heel, going after the feet, attacking those that are shod with the readiness of the gospel, rendering us ineffective. Right? So, I, that's may not be clear, but fascinating things to explore there, definitely. Ah, well, the rubber meets the road. Yeah, good. Yeah, we can work with that, huh? There's a lot of cool stuff here. Yeah, great stuff to think there, isn't it? Great stuff. Well, in closing, number 9 and 10, I just wanted to notice briefly the content of Paul's prayer. After he goes through the spiritual armor, what is he asking for? For boldness. Yeah, you know what he's praying for? He's praying that he would stand against the enemy as well. He goes, hey, pray for me as well. I'm in chain in this Roman prison. Pray for me that I may stand against the enemy and give me boldness, right? What's interesting is what he does not pray for. What does he not ask prayer for? For freedom, right? He's in jail. Say, hey, pray for me that I'd be released. Get back off my mission. I got plans, big plans. I got plans to go to Spain. I'm stuck in a Roman prison. I wanted to come to Rome. That was just a launching pad to Spain. I got some more ministry going on. Hey, pray for my release. No, he doesn't pray for that. He prays for the freedom and the boldness to preach the gospel right where he's at right now. So pray for boldness. That I may stand against the enemy who want to discourage me and pray that I would be faithful to boldly and clearly proclaim the gospel where he has me. To quote John Stott, Freedom is what he longs for. Not freedom from confinement. But freedom to preach the gospel. Isn't that cool? And then he ends with the final greetings. In the final benediction, we find the words grace and peace, which are also found in the opening blessing, verse 2 of chapter 1. In conclusion, how do these two words summarize the message of Ephesians. Give it a shot. Just kind of a nice saying, yeah, grace and, you know, grace and peace, peace and grace. Is he using those casually? What's that? Emmy? Peace. He's been talking a lot about peace, hasn't he? Right? 
Yeah. I think peace is a, is, a, is a major theme in Ephesians, isn't it? Ephesians 2, where is it? Yeah, Ephesians 2, verse 15. He's abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It refers to Christ's reconciling work on the cross. Peace to you. May you experience it. That gospel of peace. May it be yours. May all that we've talked about in this letter be yours. Peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. And by that peace and unity that you share, may you testify of me and what I've done in creating a church, one new people for, your, for myself, my people, who would testify of my work. Yeah, peace. How about grace? Another major theme in Ephesians? Ah, yeah, good, Gary. It's only through the grace of God that we have that peace. Another major theme in Ephesians. Two great words to summarize the book of Ephesians. Peace and grace. It's grace that makes all this possible. One new humanity in Christ. Christian's wealth and the Christian's walk all made possible by the grace of God. May that lead us to a love, a love for our Savior. As Paul closes, a love that is incorruptible. Well, folks, that is time. I've gone a little over this evening. May you store the word of God in your hearts. May Ephesians live long in your hearts. May you come back to it, draw from it, have devotions in it, share it in evangelism, preach it to yourself, remind yourself of it as you fight this fight and walk the walk. I walk worthy of the gospel. Amen? Amen.